Sure glad you could sit down and enjoy this podcast because we have a great one today. We have Jeff Payne, who is a collector of vintage football equipment and memorabilia, and he joins us today to show us some of his pieces from the Pottsville Maroons and their lost 1925 NFL championship. Jeff's got the stories coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your portal to positive football history. And welcome to another episode where we get to talk about some great vintage football history. And when I say vintage, it's sort of capitalized tonight because we are going to have a collector who is in charge and has sort of created a forum called the Vintage Football Collectors Forum. His name is Jeffrey Payne. He is from my hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome to the pig pen. Uh, It's great to be here, Darren. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with your audience. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you here. You know, we've uh, corresponded quite a bit via email and in the forum, and uh, it's a great site. Uh, Maybe, I guess, before we get going, why don't you explain a little bit about what the VFC is and, uh, you know, a little bit about it and how how it came about? Yeah, sure. So I've been involved in the football hobby since I was a kid in the 70s. And, you know, one thing that always kind of struck me was how – Football was always kind of just a little piece of baseball-oriented forums out there. You know, I mean, there's so many baseball collectors and whatnot. And and football, to me, really didn't have a home. Like, if you were interested in talking about football 24 by 7, you know, memorabilia, history, cards, whatever, there was just, in my opinion, just nowhere to live. Um, And so, you know, about five years ago, I got a little frustrated with a a forum that I was on at the time. And I was, and I had been talking to a few uh, hardcore football guys about maybe getting something going. And they were like, we should, you should just do this. Like, let's make this happen. And we just started the forum. So now it's, you know, 150 plus members. It is, it's a private forum. So if people, you know, are, are, are worried about showing certain things, they know that it's a closed audience it's, it's not open to the public. You know, it's not out there on the internet. You can't get to it um, unless you're a member. Um, and we just set it up and, and just have collectors from all eras, all the way from the, you know, the early days of college football and the, you know, 1800s, all the way through to modern collectors who are, you know, collecting today's sets. And my goal is to just build a, an empire of anybody and everybody that loves football, loves memorabilia, cards, history, research, books, just come on in. It's free. And uh, we want to have a place where anybody can talk about anything to do with football. And we can also archive history, which is one of my passions. So that's kind of the idea behind VFC. Okay. Now, if we have some folks uh, during the process of this listening, um, we'll get some contact information from Jeff and we'll share it in the show notes of this podcast. We'll also reflect those on Pigskin Dispatch for the uh, 
article that's going to be subsequent to this podcast. So we'll make sure you get linked up there. So I know some of you are out there driving cars and stuff. We don't want you, you know, trying to get a pencil out and write things off the road, memorize it. (laughs) So we got, we got it all recorded for you. Don't, don't worry. You can uh, come back and get it from the show notes or from pigskindispatch.com. Now, Jeff, something that I've really observed, and I think you, you touched on it just a little bit here is the, the collectors, the, the wide array of collectors, you know, we've, there are threads, uh, Boy, there's just multitudes of them that just about anything you could think of. And, you know, people that collect, you know, jer- just professional jerseys, people that collect, you know, uh, helmets of, uh, you know, college teams and, and postcards and gosh, there's just everything, programs, ticket stubs, everything. There's such a wide array. Now, is that common for collectors to sort of just be, you know, narrow into one one area of collecting or, or is, is it more the majority of the, the group, uh, like a wide array, anything they can get their hands on football, just a tasty treat? Uh, there's a couple of us, I think that are, I don't know, we're over ambitious. <laughs> we like <laughs> everything, but I think most of the collectors on VFC and I think in the hobby in general, you know, they have their likes, they have things that they specialize in or really enjoy, whether it's a certain era, it's a certain team, you know, it's a certain type of memorabilia. You mentioned, you know, kind of game used or, you know, vintage equipment. Um, it might be pins or ribbons or postcards or whatever programs, right? Programs. And, and then obviously mm-hmm. sports cards. So I think most collectors have some sort of a focus, but some of us are, I don't know, we're just insane. We just <laughs> like so much of everything. You just go like, oh, I want that. I want that, you know? Um, so I, I think it, but I, I have my focus areas too, even though I, I like so much stuff. I do have certain things like the topic tonight that I really am passionate about. And, and like to, you know, try to find as many items as I can for that particular area. Well, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's, let's talk about tonight's topic. And uh, I guess uh, if we want to give a little intro on the, the subject matter we're going to be talking about, maybe just tell us a little bit about what you have. Yeah. So we're coming up on the hundredth anniversary of what uh, is called the stolen NFL championship of 1925. Right. There's been books written about it. And um, there's going to be a big, I guess you call it a celebration up in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Um, That's the home of the Pottsville Maroons. They were an early NFL team. They're obviously long gone, um, but they feel they were cheated out of the 1925 NFL championship. There's a lot of controversy about it today. It's still being debated. Pottsville still takes runs at getting their championship back. And, uh, you know, it's just a fascinating story. And from being from Pennsylvania, like yourself, I was just fascinated when I got back into the hobby, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I had never heard of the Pottsville Maroons as a kid, right? In the 70s, 80s. Didn't know there were any other NFL teams that had ever been in Pennsylvania other than the Steelers and the Eagles, right? And here you find out the Maroons were there in Pottsville on the eastern side of the state. And so were the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets who were outside Philly. And it, it was it's just an intriguing story uh, about what happened that year and the controversy behind why, you know, Pottsville passionately feels like they deserve the NFL championship. Yeah. Um, now, uh, um, do you want to share a little bit about the story or? Yeah. Or, OK. Yeah. If you want yeah, to tell give us a little. Oh. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Okay, we, we that can spend good. We can spend days talking give, about give it. Us, give us the old 20-cent tour here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it comes down to heading down the stretch that season. The NFL championship looked like it was going to be between the Chicago Cardinals 
and the Pottsville Maroons. Cardinals had the best record in the league. They had lost once. The Maroons had lost twice. And we're heading into December, right? And the season was slated to end the 20th of December. Now, back then, though, um, you know, NFL teams, the only rule, there was no fixed schedule games. NFL teams made their own schedules. The only requirement was you had to play a certain number of games. I think back then it was like six or or so you had to play against other NFL teams, but you could pick who they were. Now, all the owners negotiated their own contracts and games and locations and all that stuff. And so it was a lot more loosey-goosey back then than it was now. The Cardinals and the Maroons were not slated to play each other. But the you know back then, if you could make a buck, you were making a game, right? I mean, those mm-hmm. teams were struggling to survive in the early days. And so the uh, owner of the, Mar- of the Maroons... His name is uh, John Striegel. He went by Doc, Doc Striegel, who's a medical doctor. And the owner of the Chicago Cardinals, Chris O'Brien, got on the phone and they cooked up a plan to play a game. And they were going to call it the NFL championship, right? Because they were the two best teams. And whichever team won that game was going to be in the lead, at least. Um, now, of course, they could they could schedule more games later. That was still allowed. But, you know, they you know back then, teams were always hyping games as being really important because they were trying to draw fans. So they decided they were going to play a game and it did happen. It happened on December 6th. Most of the pundits in the paper expected the Cardinals to win. Um, One of the reasons was that the the Maroons, one of the reasons why they got um, brought into the NFL was they were pretty close to Frankfurt, Yellow Jackets. And Frankfurt wasn't allowed to play on Sundays because Philly had blue laws at that time. You weren't allowed to play on Sundays. And so what teams would do that were passing through is they would come and they would play the Yellow Jackets on Saturday, and then they would skip uptown, you know, less than an hour away to Pottsville, and they would play Pottsville on Sunday. So it was a way to get two games in on a weekend, on a travel trip, make more money, obviously. And a lot of the pundits said, well, that gives the Maroons an unfair advantage, right? They're playing teams that had often played the day before. And so everybody expected the Cardinals were going to, you know, we're going to whoop them. But that's not what happened. The Maroons came into town, steamrolled them 21 to 7. And even the Chicago papers were saying this is the best team in the NFL. They're the NFL champs. Um, You know, they came into town and kicked our Cardinals butts. So all was sounding good, right? At about that time, the Maroons had scheduled an exhibition game. This is the other thing that happened back then a lot was, you know, NFL teams would play teams that weren't in the NFL. They were allowed to do that and to follow certain rules about where you played and when the games were. But they had been approached by a promoter who had put together what he was calling the Notre Dame All-Stars. They were a bunch of former Notre Dame players, including the four horsemen of Notre Dame, and some of the linemen, the seven mules, as they called them. And they were, you know, looking for games against top teams. And the Maroons were approached. And, you know, the promoter said, hey, you all are the best team, looks like, in the NFL. You know, here's 1924 college champs, the Notre Dame team, or less, right? Why don't we call this game the world championship? And, you know, let's see who the better team is. And, of course, back then, as you know, there was a lot of debate about whether the pro teams were as good as the college teams. There was still a lot of debate about who was better. You know, today that's obviously been solved, but back then it was debatable and there weren't a lot of opportunities where college oriented type teams or 
postgraduate teams were playing against NFL teams. So um, everybody thought this was going to be wildly successful. And, and so they set this game up to happen a week later after the Cards Maroons game happened. And um, the Maroons called the NFL office. They felt like they got permission to play the game. Everything was set. They signed a contract. And then the president, Joe Carr, president of the NFL, calls up the Maroons and says, you don't have permission to play this game. You, it's slated to be played in Philly. That's where the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, that's their territory. They're upset you're coming to town. You can't do that during the season. Uh, you need to cancel this game. Well, the owner of the Maroons was like, well, gosh, I signed a contract. I called the office and I thought I got permission and I signed a contract. Now I'm liable. I can't just back out of a contract. You know, will the NFL foot the bill if I get sued or, you know, something happens? I can't afford, you know, losses on this this opportunity. And Joe Carr said, well, I, I can't guarantee you. I don't know what the losses would be. I, I'm not going to guarantee we're going to cover losses you have. I can't do that. And the Maroons said, well, then we're going to play uh, because we feel legally obligated. And they played the game. And um, Joe Carr warned them three times, don't play this game. You're going to suffer. And they they decided in the end that, you know, they would play the game and then they would deal with Joe Carr later. We'll go fight with Joe Carr later and plead our case. And hopefully he'll, you know, he'll kind of back down. So they played the Notre Dame All-Stars. Um and the Maroons won. They kicked a field goal in the last quarter. Charlie Berry, one of their superstars, kicked a 30-yard field goal, and they won 9-7, to seven, which was another major upset because most people felt that the Notre Dame team, you know, would, would walk all over a pro team at that point. And uh, true to his word, Joe Carr um, suspended the Maroons from the league he told them they weren't allowed to play any other NFL games and he fined them 500 bucks or something like that. And they were kicked out of the league at that point. Now what happened was, and this is where it gets even twistier when the owners got together and the, and the way NFL champs were determined in the, in the twenties, there were no playoffs at that point. It was a vote of the owners and they typically voted for whatever team obviously had the best record. And so they got into the room, the owners heard, you know, the Maroons case because Doc Striegel showed up. He brought his brother who was a lawyer. Nice, right? Mm -hmm. Nice to have a brother that's a lawyer right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stating their case. Um, the owners heard the case and the owner said, now we're, we're going to side with Joe Carr. Uh, you, you're still suspended from the league and you're not eligible for the championship. And so they voted for the Cardinals uh, for the championship that season. Now, in an ironic twist, when they tried to give it to the Cardinals, the owner of the Cardinals wouldn't take it. He said, we didn't win this on the field. We lost to the Maroons. I'm not taking a championship we don't deserve. And so he declined the championship. Then in the summer of that next year, the Maroons were actually let back into the league. Their suspension was lifted. Their fine was um, forgiven. And they thought that meant they got their championship back. But a decade later, in looking through the record books, someone in Pottsville realized no, it's it says the Cardinals have this championship and that's not right. That's not the way this all went down. And so they started to try to figure out how to petition the NFL to get their championship back. And they've been petitioning and fighting this ever since. So it's been almost 100 years. That's the short version. 
Yeah, it's and it's it actually has some some great uh, shoot offs from that. You know, they uh, mm. uh, supposedly Frankfurt in Pottsville, their game that they played earlier, I believe it was in November. They mm-hmm. decided they knew about the Notre Dame challenge and they said, yep. OK, we're going to have the best team from Pennsylvania play. So whoever wins that gets the right to play mm-hmm. Notre Dame because they knew it was a big payday, like you said. And of course, Pottsville yep. won that. So that's that's how they they got that game. Allegedly, the, yes. the Cardinals. One of the reasons they backed off is because they had a scandal of their own. They it went, they, they scheduled after they lost the Pottsville, they scheduled two quick games to try to beat, you know, from December 6th to December 20th, they had time to get a couple games and they were trying to get the bears to with red Grange to come in and play too. So they have a payday, yeah. but they, uh, a couple cupcake games, they supposedly the Milwaukee Badgers who had already disbanded for the year. So they, they threw in some high school kids and everything and got, got caught and, uh, you know, having these high school kids play and, uh, look kind of bad for him. So I think that's sort of why Chris O'Brien was kind of sheepish. Didn't want to accept yeah. that, you know, plus he got beat. So, so that was a uh, kind of interesting and uh, you know, Frank or um, Pottsville scheduled the game in Philly because their stadium was a little bit too small. They wanted to get the, the big crowds yep. and everything. And uh, I think, and uh, we, we have our friend, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chris Willis from NFL films. Mm-hmm. He's the historian. Absolutely. He, uh, well, Chris has been on, he's, of course, he wrote Joe Carr's uh, biography yep. and he, he was on a couple of years ago and talked about it. He, he sort of took the stance. We talked about this a little bit and from Joe Carr's standpoint and from his biography standpoint, um, Joe Carr said no, because they went into Philadelphia, like, like you said, mm-hmm. and, uh, if they would have went and played the game up in, you know, up in Pottsville, everything would have yeah. been okay because Frankfurt also had a game scheduled that day a couple miles away and uh you worry about the gates and everything and frankfurt's probably a little bit uh miffed that they lost the game and didn't get to play notre dame and you know those sour grapes and everything so there's a, there's a lot of wheels spinning on this one it's interesting there are because if you reach back a year or so um one is the when before pottsville entered the nfl they were one of the anthracite league teams you know the coal coal teams in the in pennsylvania they poached some nfl players Pete Henry and a couple others got poached out of Canton. Well, I guess they had transferred by then up. The, I think the franchise was in Cleveland at that point. It consolidated, mm-hmm. but they snagged some players and, and made Joe Carr really mad, which didn't probably help their cause because he took them to court and um, the court case got thrown out on a technicality. But their argument was, we're not in the NFL. We, we can hire anybody we want you know you go after the players if you want but you can't go after us too bad joe Carr, and that that didn't sit very well the other thing was that um you know pottsville and frankfurt were bitter enemies i mean they they'd been playing for years before in the nfl and they went back and forth and they despised each other and pottsville had also poached the stein brothers from them russ and herb Mm -hmm. stein they poached from frankfurt and got them to come over to pottsville and Frankfurt was not happy about that either. So there was a lot of, you know, bad blood between these, these different, you know, <laughs> constituents in this story. Yeah. So early NFL uh, soap opera drama. <laughs> exactly. Like. Great, great yeah, to, exactly. to talk about and read about it. It's some great stuff. So, yep. so you have some artifacts that uh, in your collection that uh, you'd, you'd like to chat about today that go back to this Pottsville uh lost championship season and very interested in hearing about these. Yeah, I do. And the first artifact 
is related to this phone call that happened. And actually, I'm working on a case as to why the Maroons deserve the NFL championship, but I'm not ready yet. I'm really digging hard. I've been digging for years on it because I, I got an angle that hasn't been fully explored. I don't feel it like, but uh, maybe maybe by night, you know, 2025, when the 100th anniversary celebration happens, I'll 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 get it out there somehow. Right, I'm, but I'm it, sure there's a lot of people in the, the eastern uh, Pennsylvania coal region that are, are rooting for you. <laughs> oh, absolutely, case. yeah. And <clears throat> so the first one, first artifact has to do with this this phone call and what went down on the phone call. And this started the whole controversy. The whole problem stemmed from this phone call because Doc Striegel did the right thing. He called the NFL first to get permission to play the game. All right. But unfortunately, when he called the NFL office, which at that time was in Columbus, Ohio, that's where Joe Carr lived, right? Um, Joe Carr had had surgery recently, and he was at home recovering. He was not in the office. So what happened when Joe Carr wasn't in the office, and this had happened before, was Jerry Corcoran, who played for Joe Carr with the Columbus Panhandles in the teens, and he was still in town. He was an athlete. He was a coach. He would often cover the phones. So Joe would ask Jerry to sit in the office and pick up the phone if, you know, anybody called and needed anything. And, and you know, while he wasn't the president of the NFL, you know, many feel that he was pretty much given the, the right to figure out what to do with issues that showed up. And so when Doc Striegel calls the NFL office, he gets Jerry Corcoran. And Jerry Corcoran, you know, picks up, says who he is. He goes, hey, Jerry, they all knew each other, of course. And and he says, well, here's what we're trying to do. And here's what we want to do. And we want to make sure this is OK before we go ahead and sign this contract. And Jerry Corcoran listens to the whole thing. And he says, gosh, I don't know any reason why you, you couldn't do that. Sounds like a great game. It's going to be great for the NFL. Hope you guys win. Good luck. <laughs> and that was the call. So based on that, Doc Striegel signed the contract. Now, there were two other people in the room, and this substantiates the story because originally when Doc Striegel gave this version to Joe Carr, Joe Carr didn't necessarily believe that a phone call had happened. Uh, he obviously had not talked to Jerry Corcoran, or if he had, maybe Jerry Corcoran had kind of yeah, maybe changed the story a bit, right? Um, but there were two other people in the room with Doc Striegel that day. The coach Dick Rouch of the Maroons was in the room. And so was an NFL player named Dick Stallman. He was not a possible Maroons player. He had played with them in previous seasons. He was playing with the Akron pros that year, but their last game was in Pottsville and he was going to hang around and play with the basketball team. They had in Pottsville, the kind of pro basketball team. And so he just didn't leave after the season ended. So he was just hanging around with the coach and the owner and the players and just, you know, hanging out till the base basketball season started. And he was in the room too. Well, when the, um, when Pottsville got serious about trying to get their championship back, one of their angles was we're going to prove this call happened. We're going to prove that Jerry Corcoran on behalf of the NFL gave us permission and if he hadn't done that, we never would have signed a contract and got ourselves in this position. And so they reached out um, to Dick Rouch, Dick Stallman, and Doc Striegel to get them to, to write up and sign affidavits and get them notarized that this call happened. Here's what the call is about. Here's what we heard to use that as evidence that this call happened and the NFL should stand behind 
the decision that was made that day in their office, regardless of who picked up the phone, right? Because that person was representing the NFL. And, um, you know, back in 2013, when I first got back into collecting um, as an adult and I got into the possible maroons, a bunch of memorabilia came up for auction. And in one of the, in one of the lots was the affidavit from Dick Rouch, the coach of the Maroons, you know, original affidavit came right out of the Pottsville archives. And you know what? I didn't know. I knew it was significant, but I didn't really understand the full significance of it. And I didn't win it. I took a bid at, you know, I took a run at it, did not win it. I know who has it. So maybe (laughs) someday I'll be lucky enough to get it, but I didn't win it. I did win a couple of nice things, but, but the gem in that auction was there were two humongous plastic tubs, you know, these are big, like, you know, Tupperware tubs, those big ones, though, with mm-hmm. like the blue tops, probably, you know, two feet by three feet by, you know, a foot or two. Huge. And it was just paper. And, and the lot said, you know, you know, part of the, you know, Pottsville Maroons estate, it's letters, it's photos, it's, you know, other things. Right. It was very nondescript. And I looked at it, I was like, this is the leftovers, right? This is the stuff they couldn't figure out what it was, (laughs) or, you know, it wasn't significant enough to put it in its own lot. It's just a big pile of stuff. But you know what? I love big piles of stuff because I love to root through stuff and archive stuff and figure out what it is. And so I put a bid in and I won. So one day these huge tubs show up and I probably spent a year sorting through that paper half of which I could not figure out what it had to do with the Maroons. Like, you know, they're using nicknames in these, in these um, letters that, you know, it just, it didn't make any sense to me. But as I learned more about the story, I read more books slowly. I would look at something again. I'd be like, Oh, I know what this is now. I'd said it in my, I know what this is pile. And I whittled that those two bins down to, I have a stack of probably, I don't know. It's probably six inches deep now that I still don't know what those things are. I know they have some connection to the Maroons because everything in those bins did. Um, Now, there's lots of historical information in there, but not a lot of valuable things except for one thing. I'm sorting through letters, and I find a letter, an envelope, still in its original envelope, from Dick Stallman, the player that was in the room that day when the call was made. I open it up. It's a short letter. It says, hey, Joe, it was to Joe Zacco, person who was kind of running all the efforts to get their championship back in the 60s and 70s, said, hey, Joe, sorry, this note's so short. I know this is time sensitive. And with the letter was his original affidavit of what he heard on that call that day. How somebody in, see, Joe Zacco died in the early 70s. His son died in the early 80s. We're talking decades later, how that letter sat in that pile of stuff and nobody figured out what it was or how significant it was. I have no idea, but it made my day, you know, (laughs) as um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a piece of history. Yeah, especially letting us slip away and go, go to auction, you know, and th- thank goodness there's, uh, somebody that uh, cares enough about the football history, like yourself, got their hands on it to to help preserve it and to, to share it. So uh, that's great. Absolutely. Great story. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you said uh, you, you have uh, another artifact, too, that uh, pertains to Pottsville. 
Yeah, this is a biggie. This is my pride and joy of oh, my possible boy. collection. Folks, I'm looking at him on, on a Zoom call. You can't see his face, <laughs> but it is like, uh, uh, you know, a, a father picking up a baby for the first time in the hospital. Yeah. Uh, this, this item belongs in the Hall of Fame. I'm not giving it to him, but um, it belongs <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. Um, so about three years ago, buddy of mine from VFC, actually, uh, they know what I collect. And so occasionally, you know, somebody sends me a link and says, hey, I don't know if you saw this, you know, whatever. And, you know, I always appreciate those kind of references because it's so hard to keep on track of all the auctions going on out there and just all the stuff flying around. He sent me, he said, this is something you ought to look into. I don't know if it's legit or not. So I clicked on it. It's this obscure auction house I'd never heard of. They don't really specialize in, you know, memorabilia, sports memorabilia. Um, look kind of mom and pop-ish, but the lot was what they claimed was the football used in the Notre Dame All-Star versus possible Maroons game. Oh, boy. And it had a scuff mark on it. The story goes that Charlie Berry, the reason they were losing before he kicked his field goal at the end to win was he missed the extra point on their touchdown and he hit the upright. And the ball has a scuffy area where it's claimed that was the scuff from where it bounced off the bounced off the uprights, right? So I'm I'm reading this, and of course, you you know, you can't trust what you read in these auction. Right. <laughs> you better make sure it's legit. So I'm reading this, I'm thinking, how in the world are we gonna ever know for sure that this is the ball, right? But fortunately, uh, I'll give the consigner credit. They had included some other information with the ball that made it a bit more compelling and a bit more legitimate. First was um, the consigner wrote an, wrote a, a, a letter, which was um, also countersigned by a memorabilia expert who had supposedly fact-checked this that said, I got this ball from my mom. My mom got this ball from my grandfather. Here's their names. My grandfather was the person that the Maroons gave this ball to after they won the game. And and it included an article on his grandfather from the 60s out of a paper. And I went and found it just to make sure it wasn't doctored or wasn't, you know, fake talking about the story. His grandfather had let the Maroons sleep in his mattress factory the night before <laughs> so they could all be, you know, close close by and they could get to the game together. Uh, he offered up his mattress factory, laid out a bunch of mattresses. He was friends with Charlie Berry. So Charlie Berry and his wife actually stayed in his house, though all the rest of the players and coaches stayed in the mattress factory. And the Maroons were so overjoyed when they won that they inscribed a ball, the ball, the game ball. It says world champs, 1925 Pottsville. It has all the players listed. It has all of their um, scores from the season listed on it. Um, they presented it to him as a keepsake and he kept it all those years. The other thing that was in that lot that was definitely legit. If there's one thing I know, it's Joe Zacco's signature. He was the you know, Pottsville guy because right. I, I read like a hundred. I have like a hundred letters that he wrote with his signature on it. It was a letter from Joe Zacco to this guy's grandfather, pressuring him to sell him the ball. I want the ball. It belongs with the shoe that Charlie Berry, you know, kicked the field goal that, you know, he had bronzed or, you know, gold plated or whatever Joe Zacco did with that shoe. Um, I want the ball to go with the shoe. 
And, you know, won't you sell it to me? You said you would. You haven't. And it's kind of it reads like Joe Zacco. He was a little edgy. Um, and then it has his signature at the bottom. Right. And I, the signature was legit. I was like, this is a letter Joe Zacco wrote. Right. <laughs> so then the real question was, did this ball really pass down right through these generations? Well, I found a newspaper uh, article that talked about the grandfather giving the ball to his daughter at, mm. at, um, before he passed away. And then an article talking about the mother passing the ball on to her son, who was the consigner. So I don't know. I, I can't figure out what else you could ask for in terms of provenance. It sounds it sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, so that, that, I grabbed it. I, I bought it. That sounds pretty solid. There's a lot of boxes getting checked there and reconfirmed and uh, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of accreditation to that uh, prominence. That's for sure. Wow. Yep. That is something, you know, it, I guess the only other thing maybe is, which probably doesn't exist is maybe the, you know, picture of the game ball, you know, and you can look at it and say, oh, here's a Nick in the stripe or, or, or you know, whatever. They didn't have stripes and, you know, something, some identifying mark on, on the ball like in a game photo, which they probably don't have too many game yeah. photos. From that the game. closest is the, uh, the article in the sixties with the original owner, he's holding the ball and it's hard cause the angle's different, but sure as heck looks like the same ball. You can see the scuff area, you know, he's actually pointing to it cause that was part of the story about how, you know, Barry hit the, you know, hit the goalpost and it's, it's reflected on the ball. Now I don't know if, the Maroons did it or this gentleman did it or someone else did it, but somebody took what looked like um, like a leather burner or a wood burner and traced over some of the letters, the small stuff they couldn't touch because it was so tiny. It's very faint, like the names of the players and their record. It really have to look closely to see it. But somebody took a wood burner or a leather burner and went over the world champs Pottsville and also colored in the scuff mark to highlight it. <laughs> that had to have been done later. I can't find any information on who did that to kind of preserve the writing. I think they thought it was fading away, which it kind of is. Um, and that wasn't on the, the football that, you know, is in that sixties photo. At least it didn't look like, it at that point had been, you know, doctored, if you will, or enhanced so that it uh, read a little bit better. Well, but I, definitely the scuff mark is there. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah, that's that's got to be one of the most famous uh, vintage footballs there is out there. That's that's a great find. Great. Uh, great for you. Congratulations on on that purchase. That's uh Thanks. And the, the detective work, that's part of the fun, isn't it? When you, you mm -hmm. collect something and you have it and you do this research, I'm sure it wasn't like an overnight uh, research thing. It's probably no, sure, long a year, a year. Wow. Yeah. One. And one of the, I didn't mention this to you, but one of the other articles I have, not a huge story behind it, but I racked my brain. It was a, it was a yearbook from 1925 from a high school in Chicago. And I thought it was Grange related. I was trying to figure out how, what connection Grange had and what it was. And dummy me, I just wasn't thinking, you know, Maroons enough. One day I'm reading about the game where the four high school kids are playing and they got kicked out. 
and I see the name of their high school and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the yearbook. <laughs> Zacho got the yearbook from their high school year. It has all four of their pictures in it and all the information. I mean, this guy collected anything that touched the Maroons, but that had me stumped forever. I could not figure out what this yearbook had to do. I was looking at the pictures thinking, is this a coach later? Is this a, you know, who, what is this? And then I saw the the name of the high school and it all clicked one day and checked that one off the list. Wow. So definitely did some detective work there. That's, that's some good stuff. Wow. That's, <laughs> you, you were saying you had good stories on it. You were definitely right. That is very interesting, very compelling too. And uh, it's already compelling story. And uh, you just, you know, add some more icing to that, that cake. It's, a, it's a always giving. So, wow. Well, I wish you very much luck on, uh, you know, presenting this case. I'll be very interested to to pay attention to that and uh, to see thank how you. you go and what, what you'll be doing on that. Because uh, thank you. I, I know even as recent years, I know a contingent went to the NFL asking for that mm-hmm. championship, I believe two or three years ago and uh, got yeah. shot down, but Hey, you never know. You keep trying. Cause Someone mm-hmm. one day it might stick, especially the Cardinals well, don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Well, some things might be brewing too. I don't know if you saw it posted, but just recently the two disputed games that the Cardinals played, which has always been shown in the NFL record as being part of their record. But Joe Carr had said that he was going to strike those from the record, at least the one with the high school kids, but it never happened just recently. The NFL archives took those two games out. It now shows Pottsville above the Cardinals in the standings because they took mm-hmm. away those two games. I'm like, well, why would they do that unless something is brewing, right? At, at least, I mean, to me, the compromise is just call them co-champs. I mean, nobody wants to get an, an NFL championship taken away from them. The Cardinals only have two. You know, I mean, I don't blame them. They they haven't won since 47, for goodness sakes. And the other one is disputed. Why couldn't you settle on a compromise? Call them the co-champs. They tied effectively or whatever. It doesn't need to be something the Cardinals need to change. They can still talk about themselves as the champs, but give possible what they deserve, which is the notoriety and the credibility for how great that team was. So yeah. maybe that'll happen, right? Maybe that's the answer. Well, you're you're making me put my tinfoil hat on now and my conspiracy <laughs> theory. And yeah. I, I I did I did hear about what you just said mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, them striking some of the Cardinals things. I uh, I talked quite a bit to uh, probably the the most uh, renowned uh, Chicago Cardinals historian Josie Yemba, who's wrote a couple mm-hmm. books on. He's a, he's a good reading friend one right now. Are you okay? Yeah, he's yep. a good friend of mine. We talk cards versus bears. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. That's his latest book. It's excellent. Uh And uh, he, you know, mentions quite a bit, you know, that they, they probably didn't deserve that. And if anybody's going to root for the Cardinals, his dad played for the Cardinals, you know, yeah. And uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, lifelong uh, fan of them when he was growing up. Well, I think that maybe the NFL is softening their position a little bit because maybe conspiracy theory, hundredth anniversary, the NFL, Uh says something like you just said, co-champions or declares Pottsville the champions or whatever. But I think yeah. maybe they recognize Pottsville a lot more than they have the first hundred years since it happened. Yep. 
Who knows? Well, then, then the next goal, my next passion is getting Tony Latone into the Hall of Fame. I'm working on that case oh. too. You know, he was oh, their yeah. kind of line Great. plunger. They call him the line plunger, but he was way more than that. Great Look legend the from stats. the Anthracite League. Oh. Yeah. Well, he only played in the NFL for what five years in the twenties. He was the leading rusher. You know, albeit the stats aren't complete, but he was the leading rusher. He had more rushing yards than Grange did, including his time in the AFL. And lo- a lot of people don't know he was the interception leader in the the twenties. So here's this guy. Everybody says, "Oh, you just like a plunger up the middle, you know, big strong guy just rammed up the middle." Uh, not not exactly. You know, he played offense. He played defense. He was a star wherever he played. He was super talented, played baseball, too. Most people don't know. He's got listings in semi-pro teams for a decade that he played for. Um, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And that that's why I'm going to I'm going to push on. Hopefully after we get the Maroons championship back. Well, that's that's I know there's been quite a talk about uh, Tony Latone the last few years in the PFRA and, uh, you know, yes. many that agree with you. He definitely deserves to be in there. There's a couple other legends, too, but Latone is definitely a name that's on the, the tongues of uh, those uh, wishing some of these senior members and that the committee will open up to more senior members and make make the record right. Let's make the Pro Football Hall of Fame where it should be, uh, you know, honoring these legends as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of people agree Absolutely. with you. Good stuff. Yeah, and let's make the Pro Football Hall of Fame the Pro Football Hall of Fame, not the NFL Football Hall of Fame, because Tar- Tony Latone also played no records, albeit for at least eight seasons before he played with the Maroons. And from all accounts, he was just a stud at every place he played. So add in those eight years pre-NFL, man, his stats were probably through the roof. You know, well, I I think they, the Pro Football Hall of Fame might be in the NFL might be opening up the gates a little bit more. I, I don't know if you've been there recently, but I know even a couple years ago, one of the first displays when you see in there, you, of course, you see the Hutmobile in their mm-hmm. new showroom there. Yeah. But uh, there's a big display of uh, you know honoring the the Houston Gamblers and uh, you know mm-hmm. Memphis show. You know they're, they're talking WFL uh, original USFL and honoring some of these players and even some Canadian players. So mm-hmm. who knows? They maybe yeah. will make it a true professional football Hall of Fame because that's been a great by many. Uh, that it should be okay. Just rename it the NFL Hall of Fame because that's all you want to yeah. talk about. But hey, well, yeah, they and one thing they might do. So they had the you know the hundredth anniversary of the NFL, you know the big you know Century Club, and they had the twenty they were going to add that were deserving. The problem was that the the people voting don't know the you know the players from the twenties, thirties, forty, even forties, fifties, or heaven forbid before the NFL, they almost need to like allocate some small number of, you know, early players that have to be considered and added until at least that backlog of, I mean, it's a sin that, you know, Duke Slater, who was an all pro, like a bazillion times it took up until that class for him to be elected to the hall of fame. Seriously. I mean, he was such a no brainer that it really is depressing for anybody with anything less than his credentials that it took him that long to get in. 
it, so. it, it was a great thing. I, I was at the ceremonies in for in 2021 nice. when they the 2020 nice. class and the 2021 class that same weekend. And it was, mm-hmm. it was phenomenal. He, you know, for Bet. somebody that's been you know, past, uh, you know, decades ago, he was cheered and re- you know, revered and they had a real nice tribute to him too. Uh, awesome. The team. So it was great, great uh, honor just as much as, uh, you know, Troy Palomalo and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of the others that went in at the same time. So it was, it was great. It was a great uh, feeling to have Duke Slater get in there for sure. And yes. I think Tony Latone would be much the same kind of ring to, to it. Fingers well, crossed. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing uh, this memorabilia that you have, these great stories that go along with it, and sharing the story of the Pottsville Maroons that uh, can't hear can't hear too many stories about the Pottsville Maroons. It's just intriguing and fascinating, and uh, really appreciate you coming on and talking tonight. Oh, really appreciate the opportunity. Always, always up for talking football with anybody, and this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Darren. We're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear.